0: Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The theme for the camp is Christianity a misrepresented religion and uh, that's been covered by different people from different aspects from different perspectives and uh, today I want to look at one of the most common uses or uh, one of the most common ways and one of the most common Means whereby Christianity is misrepresented, and that is through none other than the very book of Christianity. And so, the title of our of our study this morning is "Abusing the Bible." And uh, that Bible version that you see there on the screen is the twisted version, and uh, that's illustrating what happens many times uh, in people's minds and in people's teachings as as uh, to what they do with the scriptures. Today, there are all manner of teachings that are promoted as biblical, and yet they are the most utter foolishness. And I said that, you heard me right. It is the most absurd nonsense that is being promoted as biblical, as Christian, as truth. And it becomes a little bit sometimes overwhelming to navigate the myriad of ideas and concepts out there and to and to know what's what. And I, I understand that this is a challenge for all of us to varying degrees. There are ministers, there are ministries, there are people, there are even churches that dedicate their time to promoting some of these ideas, uh, particularly certain ones. And many times they have nothing to do with Christianity or the Bible. They are an abuse, an utter abuse of the word of God. So today I want to explore some of these things where we find this prevalent trend, where there is a systematic abuse and twisting of the Word of God. And the problem is there are so many people that go along with all these ideas. It's almost, every, it's almost like every idea that exists has people who follow it, who believe it, who subscribe to it, who are zealous in, in promoting it and sharing it. How can we be safe? How can we know what the truth is? And God's messengers today, ministers, faithful men of God, as in the days of old, they don't only have the work of preaching the gospel, but they have the unhappy task of unmasking the error and dealing with the error and the false teaching and the false doctrines that exists. Uh, Paul, was the preacher of the Gospel. Many times, a lot of his writing is dealing with problems and false teachings. Problems in the church and false teachings. Corinthians, for example, he wrote to them about these people that were teaching there was no resurrection, right? He says, listen, if Christ is not risen, then your faith is vain. You can almost sense this frustration in his voice, like, what are you people into? What is this nonsense? There's no resurrection? Are you people out of your minds? That's the Apostle Paul. The book of Galatians is the whole thing is dealing with false doctrine. Now, when we talk about doctrine, doctrine is simply a biblical word that means teaching or instruction. And so I want us to keep that in mind. So today, the same Apostle Paul gives a warning to Timothy that is relevant for us today. First Timothy chapter four, verses one to six. He says, now the spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Latter times, that's for us, right? But it's been going on since the days of Paul. Paul was dealing with it. And here is young Timothy, a young minister, and I really love the, the letters to Timothy, uh, because it's, it's Paul, a senior mentor, instructing this young preacher. And this is one of the things he warns him about. He says, listen, Timothy, This is direct from the Holy Spirit. There is going to be people who will be seduced by evil spirits and will teach doctrines of devils. Teachings of Satan. And this will happen in particularly in the last days. So it's very relevant for us. And then he goes on to give Timothy some examples of some of these false doctrines and teachings. He goes on, verse 2, speaking lies and hypocrisy having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. What's he doing here? He's giving him a list of some examples of these devious, satanic doctrines or teachings. Now, I want to tell you that this list is not exhaustive. This is just an example, illustration. There is a lot more that could be added to this list. The devil's doctrines do not end with this list. This is an important point to keep in mind. Now, I'm not gonna go today into who teaches that we are to abstain from marriage, but that is a common teaching. There are some Christian groups, uh, one in particular, that forbids a certain category of men from marriage. You know what group I'm talking about? Yeah, the Catholic priests are forbidden from marriage. Uh, God said it's not good for man to be alone. Anyway, this is just an example. I'm not going to get into that today. But my point is there are a lot more and a lot worse things, especially as we have approached and we are in and almost finished with the latter times, right? In the latter times, there's going to be a profusion of these doctrines. And so the purpose of the message today is outlined in the very next verse, what he tells Timothy, verse 6. He says, if thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine whereunto thou hast attained. So this is my mission today. I wanna put you in remembrance of these things. I want to remind you that this is the warning that the Spirit gave through Paul. And this reminder is something that every good minister is to do. And the reminder has to do with understanding How do these things come about? And how can I avoid believing a teaching of Satan? Because the teaching of Satan, I'll tell you straight away, does not sound like it comes from Satan. It sounds like it comes from the Bible. Because remember what Paul told Timothy? These people, in verse one, they will depart from the faith. What does that mean? They're not outsiders. They are people who were our own brethren. They will depart from the faith, they're in the truth but they will stray from the truth and they will begin to be seduced and they will teach these false teachings. And so there is a twofold danger that Paul is warning Timothy about here. False teachers and false teachings. False teachers and false teachings. We'll look at both quickly. I wanna look at the teachers first because that's not the main point that needs addressing. In Romans 16, Paul, the same author, gives us a description of the motive and style of false teachers. Romans 16, verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them, which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. False teachers, here it reveals to us their motive, they serve their belly, in other words they have selfish motives, they have a selfish agenda. And their manner or their style is using good words and fair speeches. Selfish motive and sounds very good, flowery, appealing, charismatic, something inspiring when you hear them speak. That's what Paul is warning about. Not only that, but it also gives us a little bit of an insight as to their appearance. Of course, elsewhere they are referred to as wolves that come in among the flock. In 2 Corinthians, he gives us a further description, chapter 11, verses 13 to 15. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. Ministers of righteousness in appearance. In reality, apostles of who? Satan. Ministers of? Satan. I want to ask you a question. You saw the picture earlier. A wolf... In sheep's clothing. What's worse than a wolf in sheep's clothing? A wolf in shepherd's clothing. You with me? A wolf who is in shepherd's clothing because he can take out so much more sheep. A leader who is appearing as indeed a minister of righteousness but is not. False teachers many times are appealing, smooth, charming, charismatic, good with words, convincing, engaging. And it's for this reason that a lot of people give, you know, think in their mind, well, what they're saying must be true. It sounds so good. It sounds so clever. It sounds so nice. Paul's motive here is, or uh, sorry, Paul's point here is simply this, that the false teachers are going to appear like the genuine. You don't know their motive. You don't know their heart you can't look at them and tell that they're wrong. And so there has to be some other means to determine false teachers. And so the point of Paul and today is not to go on a witch hunt, so to speak, to try and identify all the false teachers that exist. It's almost an impossible task. What is more beneficial and what is actually more important is to be able to learn to identify false teachings. But I just wanted to include that aspect about the false teachers because it is of relevance the focus is not really on the teachers as much as on the teaching. But I want to give you a caution here, because even though there are false teachers, not everything that a false teacher says is wrong. Because many times the error is attached to the truth. And so this is why it's important to be able to identify what is being taught, the teaching. And this is the method that the teachers use when it comes to teaching. In a number of places in the scriptures. In Peter, it calls them false teachers who bring in damnable heresies. In Corinthians, it says they handle the word of God deceitfully. Second Corinthians, corrupting the word of God. And in Galatians, perverting the gospel of Christ. There is an underlying trend. There is an underlying theme. Any false teaching promoted by any false teacher twists And abuses the Word of God and it's important for us and this is what Paul is telling Timothy to be able to identify when that occurs then it doesn't matter who is preaching who is speaking no matter how good or how bad if you are able to identify is the Word of God being twisted is the Word of God being abused or not The teaching is very important because, you know, teachings outlive the teachers. You might have a false teacher, right? But the teaching is promoted not only by him, but all those who believe him. And so it's more important not to try and identify teachers as much as teachings and what we can find out about them. This is why he gives Timothy this advice as well. 1 Timothy 4.16 Take heed unto thyself. And unto the doctrine. Continue in them for in doing this. Thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Continuing. Uh, taking heed and continuing in the doctrine. Or in the. Teaching. In the true teaching. He says take heed. Watch out. Make sure you continue in the right teaching. Don't go and try and just pick out all the false teachers. The teaching. This is really what's important. Don't deviate from that. That's established. That's established. By rightly dividing the word of truth. And this is the key. If you are able to rightly divide the word of truth and comprehend what the word of truth says, you are safe from twisting it. You are safe from these doctrines of devils. We're going to look at that in a little bit more detail. But here's another verse that a lot of people use and a lot of people abuse. Because we're going to look at some common abuses, I'm gonna give you illustrations of how the word of God is abused today, but this is a very important common verse. We all know it, 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself what? Approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He gives Timothy the method of how to do it. Now the reason why I say this verse is abused many times, is a lot of people read that first word which says study, and they understand that to mean open the Bible and study, and have a Bible study, and the more you study, You you will be able to approve yourself. This is not what the word means. The word study there means actually, the word study there actually means strive or to be diligent. Be diligent. You can look it up. It's not a great uh, abuse of the word, but it's just an illustration. I have so many times this verse is used. Uh, You know that, right? How many times have you heard that verse used? And it's used to encourage people to have more Bible study. What Paul is telling Timothy is, Timothy, I want you to be diligent. I want you to strive to do something. I want you to strive to approve yourself unto God. And how you do it is by rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, there is a a way to wrongly divide the word of truth. And this is how false teachings and abuses are shared. Falsely dividing the word of truth. It happened in the Garden of Eden, the serpent with Eve. Used God's words and God's instructions and cast doubt on them. And Eve ate from the tree. We see it again when Satan and Christ were in the wilderness. Satan quoted the scriptures to Christ, right? Remember that? And he wasn't misquoting the scriptures. He quoted it correctly. But he misapplied it. Twisting the word. This is what... Every false teaching or false doctrine has in it an underlying theme of twisting the word. How are you going to be safe? How am I going to be safe? By rightly dividing the word of truth. So today I want to look at some tools and some principles as to how we can rightly divide the word of truth. I want to show you some examples of how this is not done and what it results in and we need to keep these things in mind because Once you learn some of these ideas, some of these principles, some of these tools, once you have them, it actually goes a long way in helping you to rightly divide the word of truth. Because every person who teaches anything remotely Christian uses the same book, the Bible. Every teaching, many teachings that we would class as error, they use the Bible. So how are you to know which one is right? You have to be able to rightly divide the word (coughs) of truth In other words, the method of study that you employ, the method of trying to arrive at the meaning in the scriptures will determine what conclusion you reach. If you have faulty methods, it is guaranteed that you will not rightly divide the word of truth. The first principle I want to look at is the one that Jesus talked about. This is point number one, John 16 and verse 13. And this is by far the most important. That's why it's the first one. It's the promise of Jesus where he said, Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. The promise of the spirit is given to lead and to guide into all truth. Now, we might say, yeah, well, we all know that. That's true. But this is, brothers and sisters, the most important thing. And when I'm talking about the spirit here, this is more than just saying a prayer before Bible study. Sometimes we have a prayer before Bible study as a form and a custom. We'll be talking with some brothers and we start, you know, talking. And say, oh, okay, okay, let's pray. And we pray for the promise of the Spirit. But in the discussion, I see that that prayer did not really have an effect because the discussion goes all over the place. And so we have it as a form. It's like let's let's. Let's make this okay, and let's just pray. So this is more than just praying. This is something about truly, honestly believing this promise of Jesus Christ, that the Spirit will lead you and guide you into all truth. This is very, very significant. I want to look at another verse, and then we'll give you a few illustrations of that. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. This is the problem. Many times we give that prayer for the promise of the leading of the spirit and we remain as a natural man when we approach the word of God. And I've had discussions with people when we we deal with the word of God in a natural man way. And so the spiritual things are not discerned. All kinds of misinterpretations and strange reasonings when it comes to the word of God. And so just praying alone is not simply enough. It is actually genuinely believing in your heart and honestly in your heart seeking the truth of the word. Realizing that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. In other words, with your mind and intelligence alone, you're not gonna be able to rightly divide the word of truth. Just because you have a concordance and a dictionary, it doesn't mean that's it, you're set, you're gonna figure out exactly what the word says. These tools are important, but they are not what takes place or replaces the leading of the spirit. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. It's because of the absence of the promise being realized in a lot of people's hearts that you have this strange twisting of scripture. The spirit will never lead you to contradict what the spirit has revealed in the scriptures. So this is a very important principle. I don't don't want to just mention it at the beginning because it's important and move on. This is foundational. I'll give you an illustration. Many times I'll be talking with someone in a discussion, (coughs) and I make a certain point from a verse And the person I'm talking with, we're on different sides, so they, you know, they disagree. And the person I'm talking with, they see the point I made. And you know what happens? They ignore it, they move on, they go, oh, but this verse and that verse and the point and, and go on. And you know, these are elements where the spirit is showing something to someone. Sometimes I'm on the receiving end of that. So I need to make sure that I don't just brush off things as well. So I'm not saying I'm standing here and I'm the one who's always right in all my discussions, even though that's what we all think. I understand that, but do you know what I mean, right? Anytime we are talking with someone, if they disagree, obviously they're wrong. By default, you're the one who's right. So this is a human nature, a human aspect that we need to, to be mindful of. But the leading of the Spirit sometimes happens this way. I've had it so many times, and so you know, I've learned something. I've learned that it is not wise to continue in discussion with someone when this behavior is manifested. It's not wise. It's a waste of time, and it ends up being an utter frustration because the influence of the spirit, you know, sometimes you, know, you have the truth and you know you have the truth for whatever experience and thing the Lord has led you in. You know the scripture is definitely right on that. And you share that and you see, you see in the people's eyes, you see that, yeah, he has a point there. But, 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 and run somewhere else. And it's important to watch that that doesn't happen with us. This is one way where the word of God is abused, brothers and sisters. I'm just giving you just an illustration. Sometimes you will be in a study, sometimes you will be in a message or in a sermon where the spirit will touch your heart in a way to prompt you and lead you and say, this is the truth. This is the truth. The leading of the spirit is to lead and guide into all truth, is to rightly discern and understand spiritual things. The reason I'm saying that is because in Jeremiah, we're told, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and... Desperately wicked, who can know it? There are times when I have heard something, you know, a different idea, and I wanted to believe that it is the truth. Before examining all the evidence, before really giving it a a fair hearing, but it sounded appealing. I wanted to believe that it's the truth. You know what happens? When I come and look at the verses, I try and see them in a way that supports that feeling or that desire. You know what I'm talking about? For example, a good friend of yours or a brother comes and tells you an idea you've never heard before. So you give it a little bit more credibility because it comes from someone you trust. Now you want to be in harmony with your brethren, so you think, yeah. And so there is a subconscious desire or bias that, yeah, yeah. that's And especially if what they say sounds good, it sounds... Sounds reasonable, sounds sensible, and already your mind is leaning that way. You know what I'm talking about? It happens to all of us. And what happens is it colors our judgment. We come to the scriptures with a certain bias. Colored glasses is a good way to illustrate it. There are so many people who read the scriptures. With colored glasses whatever the color might be the color might be and these are theological colors right the Trinity and people read the scriptures with the glasses of the Trinity why because the church their church teaches them that that is the truth and no matter how much evidence you might show them they only see it a certain way the glasses need to come off first I'm saying there is some there uh, sometimes it is a lot more subtle with our own hearts how we view the scriptures because of sometimes simply biases and prejudices, whether for or against. It works both ways. Sometimes if a brother comes to you and maybe he's not a good friend, maybe you don't like him, maybe you think he's a little bit out there, and he tells you an idea, straight away you're biased, of course that's wrong. Okay, that, that's, that's equally as bad. You need to give things a fair hearing. Now, if people have a consistent track record of having far out ideas, generally speaking, whatever new thing they come up with will probably also be far out. Okay, but it, um, the point is this. There are biases and there are uh, prejudices that we have almost subconsciously that operate on how we read the scriptures. You hear it all the time. People say, you know, when I accepted the truth about God, it's like the Bible came to life. I see things in verses I've never seen before. You know what that means? You now don't have the glasses on. Okay, so we all have different glasses. We all do. Pre- you know, reading the scriptures objectively is almost impossible. There are things in our life, in our experience, in our bringing that color our judgment and color our understanding. And this is why it's most important to pray, realizing this, to pray and truly ask for the Spirit to show us what the truth is. If you're not afraid of where the Spirit will lead you, if you're not afraid of what the truth is, that is sincerely what you desire in your heart, then the Spirit will show you the truth. Why is it? Because everybody prays for the Spirit, right? You know, to lead in truth. And they believe all, all kinds of nonsense and, and contradictory ideas. So you think, what's, what's going on? Is the, is the promise not true? No, it is true. People don't really believe it. It is used only as a form. And this is the point. Let's not use that just as a form. Let's realize that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Many times, you know, people will say, well, brother... I'm convicted about this. You'll show them evidence. I'm convicted. You heard that, right? I'll tell you something. Not every conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. You can have a self-conviction. You can generate a conviction for yourself. You realize that? Conviction means what? I am firmly and honestly, truly convinced with all my heart that this is the truth. Not every conviction is born of the Holy Spirit. There are people who have convictions that are, have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit, whether it be based on feelings, whether it be based on emotion, whether it be based on something that happened to them. So it's very important to examine how do we read the scriptures? How do we arrive at the truth? Beware of self-generated convictions and desires to believe a certain thing. I'll give you an example. When this, the truth about God came our way, I remember very clearly, you know, when the penny dropped, you know that moment when the lights come on and you're like, oh, this is true. Or the, you, you actually consider it in a way, you give it a serious hearing. This might be true or this is it. And as soon as that happened, I remember, I thought, oh no, if it's true, then everyone in the church is wrong. And I remember there was a conflict mind. I thought, oh no, Where, which way am I going to go? And there was a desire in me to not want what I was convinced now is the truth. I didn't want it to be the truth because of the ramifications and the implications associated with if it is the truth. Now, I'm not saying, you know I'm so clever, I figured it out and this is what happens. This happens many times on a subconscious level without pausing to think. Now I had this happened to me on a, uh, over a period of number of days, and it was an agonizing experience for me. And you can relate to that perhaps, or maybe on a different doctrine, I don't know. But you know what I'm talking about. This happens so many times, so quickly in the mind, and so we close the mind in part to where the spirit might be leading. And this is how people end up in all kinds of places. Okay, that's the point as far as the leading of the spirit. It's important. Number two is context. And when we talk about context, I think we all know, we can quote it very well, you know, context is king. When we talk about context, everyone says, yeah, context. And one of the most common things uh, that is said about something, you know, a verse, is it's out of context. What does context mean? Context is looking at the scripture or the verse in its immediate surrounding, you know, appearance. How does it appear with the things that are around it so we can determine the right meaning? When we look at context, invariably, in most cases, it will clarify what a verse means easily, very easily. But when we look at context, There is a certain rule with context. It's easy to say, oh, context, and what's the context? Context has a number of layers, brothers and sisters, and this is very important to keep in mind. The surrounding verses are the immediate context of the passage or the scripture that we're reading, but it doesn't stop there. The chapter is the next layer of context for that particular passage of scripture. The next layer of context is the book, because this is what happens. Many times people will go to a verse and they'll jump to another book by another author to explain what this author means. So the next level of, or the next layer of context is the author. So the author of the epistle to the Romans and the author of the epistle to the Colossians is Paul. So if you compare what Paul says with what Paul says, this is in the context of the same author, you with me? It's much more sensible, and you will arrive at the meaning much clearer before you start to use Peter to explain Paul. You with me? Layers of context, very important. And then testament or covenant. People look at the context. People use verses in the new covenant context and apply them in the old covenant context and vice versa. You need to look at the context of which covenant, which testament is this verse appearing in. So this is the next layer of context. And ultimately, of course, the context of the entire scriptures. So the order is very important. You might have the right context from the surrounding verses, but then you go off because you jump, Layers and you go to another author to explain and then you skew the whole meaning you skew the whole chapter And so very important to look at context. i to give you an example of that two examples quickly This is a phrase that you see on the screen if you can read that what does that say? What does that mean? I'm providing it to you blank text without any context, right? What if I put some context around it? Here is some context. It's a sign on the road that says refuse tip. Now I don't know if you use this here, but in Australia this is what we, refer to, what we refer to as a rubbish dump, okay? It's where you would go and dump your trash, your rubbish, your waste, whatever you might want to call it, okay? This is a sign on my way home. A sign on the road that says refuse tip this way. So I know if I follow that sign, I'll get to the refuse tip. Now, what if I change the context a little bit? The same expression. And the reason I'm using a a phrase, you know, it's two words, not just one, because it helps make the point even better. I'm going to change the context. This is the staff room in the restaurant that I own, for example. And on the wall in the staff room in the restaurant that I own, this is one of the mottos that I have that my staff should follow in the restaurant. What does this mean now? Refuse tip. I didn't change the spelling. I didn't change the order of the words. All I changed was the context. So I don't want my workers to get any tip. I will pay them well. I don't want my patrons to pay tips. This is my rule in the restaurant, okay? Now, if someone sees this sign on my wall and brings their rubbish and starts dumping it (laughs) in the staff room, what would you think of them? An utter fool, out of his mind. But they say, hold on, brother. I saw the sign on the road It says refuse tip, and then I saw a rubbish dump. This is the exact same sign. This is the exact same spelling. This is the exact same words. Okay, out of context. I'm just making a point here. Many times, this is what we do with the Bible. Many times. Let me give you an example of that. This is an example that comes up to me recently, or, you know, quite often, so I want to use it. In Leviticus 23, 44, it says, And Moses declared unto the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. And the word feast there comes from the Hebrew word mawad. Given here in the context of the Old Covenant at Sinai with all the laws and instructions that God gave on the mountain. The Hebrew word is mawad. And what people do is, they say, see this Hebrew word is mawad? It actually is in Genesis 1.14. In Genesis 1.14, I'll read from there halfway in the verse. And let them be, as the the lights in the heavens in the sky, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And the word seasons there is the same Hebrew word mawad. And so what do people conclude? The feasts were instituted and given right there. They say feasts, feasts. That's reading the scriptures with total disregard to the context. That's doing the same thing as someone who would bring the rubbish and throw it in my staff room just because I have on there a sign that says refuse tip. This is given in the context of After sin entered the world, the feast. We're given in the context after sin entered the world, after Israel was brought out of slavery, where God said, I'm going to give you a covenant that if you obey, I will bless you. It's in that context, after sin. This context is totally different. This is in the context of a perfect world before sin. There's no need for any plan of salvation yet. There's nothing about the plan of salvation that is even revealed or required. Different context. You can't force the meaning just because it's the same word. If we are to be consistent with that, this method of Bible study will result in some ludicrous conclusions. Here's an example. Jeremiah 8, 7. Yea, the stork in the heaven knoweth her appointed times. You know what that word is? Ma'ad. The stork keeps the feasts. Amen. This is the conclusion I have to come to if I'm consistent with this method of Bible study. The context is irrelevant. It says the same word, brother, and they go to the Hebrew and open the concordance. Even in the Hebrew meaning, it doesn't mean feast days all the time. It actually means an appointment, an appointed time. The feasts were the appointed time in that system for the Jews to worship in that manner. The sun and the stars were to set the appointed times where you have all kinds of appointments, not just the feasts of the Lord. And so this is a very important thing to keep in mind. Here's another one. This is a popular one. First Corinthians 15, 31. Paul, I protest by rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. How many times have you quoted these words? And this is the way they're quoted most often. Brother, sister, we need to die to self daily. Paul says, I die daily. You know this is not what Paul is talking about? This is totally out of context. Paul was not talking about the spiritual uh, surrender to Christ day by day, where you die, where the old man dies. Now, don't get me wrong. The concept of dying to self is correct. This is not what this verse is meaning. What, we, what do we have to do? Just look at the context. Here's the previous verse. And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? Here's the verse after If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it me? If the dead rise not, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So what's Paul talking about? He says in in preaching the gospel, we are meeting with jeopardy every hour. We are going through trial, life-threatening experiences day by day. I die daily, essentially, in preaching the gospel. If there is no resurrection, what's the point of me going through all this trouble? You with me? This is the context. Paul did not have in mind when he wrote these words that you should have the surrender and and, and die to self every day. You can use the other verse where he says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. That's what he meant there. Now, it's not wrong to express our faith or our belief uh, in dying to self in the words, I die daily. But what happens is we start to think this is what the verse means and we read the scriptures in a different way. So it's important to pay attention to context there are many examples i could keep you here all day i'm just giving you an illustration how we are to rightly divide the word of truth the context makes a huge difference the full scope of the scriptures is also another aspect of context isaiah 28 9 and 10 i think we're familiar with that to whom shall he teach knowledge whom shall he make to understand doctrine them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast for precept must be upon precept precept upon precept line upon line line upon line, here a little and there a little. This is the greater context of the entire scriptures. Everything needs to be taken into account. The full scope of the scriptures on a particular teaching needs to be considered. I wanna give you an example of that as well, as far as uh, this greater context of the scriptures or of the Bible. Simply put, not to take isolated texts. Many times you will find, and we're going to look at that as well. Boy, that clock is fast. Okay, we're going to speed up here. Uh, False teachings usually are based on a handful of texts. Pillars for whatever false teaching that exists. So it's important to be able to identify them. This is a point that many times is used. I want to look at it briefly as well. Matthew 12, 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is a pillar text for the idea that Christ was not crucified on Friday, but crucified on Wednesday and the understanding is this, three days and three nights is taken literal, three actual days and three actual nights in a literal way. Now I want to look at that in the context, the greater context of the scripture. What does that mean? This is something that I've come across time and again. and. The reason why I conclude this is the pillar verse because usually this is one of the first ones that come up when talking about that idea. What does uh, my point here is simply this: What does Jesus mean when he say three days? When he said three days and three nights, I want to show you a few examples from the Bible, and you'll see it for yourself. You don't need me to explain it. Genesis seven twelve, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. A little later, it says in verse seventeen and the flood was 40 days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lifted up above the earth. Question, 40 days and 40 nights, and 40 days over here. Is that a different period? Is that a longer period or a shorter period? It's exactly the same. 40 days and 40 nights is the same as saying 40 days. Here's a New Testament example. Jesus in the wilderness, Matthew 4, 2, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward. And hungered. in mark it says verse 13 of chapter 1 and he was there in the wilderness 40 days tempted of satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered unto him again same thing how long was jesus in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights or 40 days it's exactly the same identical and so when jesus says three days and three nights in the heart of the earth it's exactly the same as saying three days elsewhere. So someone said, well, why did he say nights? He emphasized nights. He's saying three days and three nights. You know why he said three nights? Because he was quoting from Jonah. And in Jonah it says, three days and three nights. He could have been quoting from Mark, the equivalent. You with me? Because Jonah records it as three days and three nights. He says, I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah, and he quotes Jonah. Jonah could have very easily said three days, and it would mean exactly the same thing exactly the same time so over literalizing that and reading it in a way out of context with everything else in the scripture and the examples that are used is uh, a little deviation there that leads to a false conclusion all kinds of texts can be used sunday sacredness a few handful of verses taken out of the harmony of the whole scope of the scriptures what the scripture has to say eternal torment in hell and all kinds of aberrations and false doctrines and twisted teachings how do we read number 4 consistency in looking at consistency well let's before we read the verse when you interpret a passage in a way where the meaning ends up contradicting the same author and what he says elsewhere you are inconsistent consistency is very very important particularly beginning with the authors an example of that is paul paul is one of those authors that according to a lot of people, contradicts himself, the way they interpret him. This passage is an example of that. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Paul here talks about the feast days, the new moons, the Sabbaths, all these aspects of the ceremonial law, and he calls them Shadows. Of things to come. And I've heard people say, well, these shadows are actually still needed today because they help us access the reality. But this is not how the same apostle uses the word shadow. He only uses that word two other times in Hebrews. In Hebrews 8, talking about the ministers or the Levitical priests uh, who serve unto the example of a shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God. And then he goes on. And the other verse is chapter 10 and verse one. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things. And then it says can never make anyone perfect. So the way he uses shadow is consistent every time. It's in the context of the old covenant, specifying different elements of it. And every time he uses it, he's indicating that now we have the reality, we no longer need the shadow. So to interpret Colossians 2, to say, well, this shadow here is to be maintained When elsewhere, the same author says the shadow is gone, we now have the light, is to make Paul contradict himself. And this gets really tragic. If it wasn't so tragic, it would be humorous. Because I was talking to someone once, and I made this point, I said the shadow, as far as Paul's concerned, shadows are the past, they're gone, now we have the light. You don't need to be in the shadow if you have a light. They said, no, well, shadow can be a good thing, not a negative thing. And this is the example they gave me. I laughed. They said, in the book of Acts, it says, when Peter was walking by, his shadow would pass on the ground. And where his shadow was, the people were healed. And I looked at the person, and to my horror, they were serious. The shadow of Peter walking on the ground, you're using that to to compare with what Paul is doing here. Paul is using shadow as a metaphor, as a metaphor of the old covenant. You with me? And so when we want to believe something, we will find ways to make it fit. And it will fit in our mind. But the scripture has been twisted to make that fit. And we are to be careful. We don't end up doing that or falling for that. And so consistency, the author uses it in a way that is very, very clear and consistent. Uh, here's another one. Second Peter 1.20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. This important principle is that scripture interprets scripture. Number five, scripture interprets scripture. No private uh, interpretation. In other words, this commonly used phrase, when we read a passage, and, and this is in Sabbath school a lot. Well, what this verse is saying to me is blah, 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 blah. What this verse means to me is blah, 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 blah. Now, this is maybe your personal private interpretation. Great. But that's not necessarily what the verse means. With all due respect, I don't care what the verse says to you in your opinion. I want to know what the verse says according to what God intended. Because you know what happens? People read the same verses. Well, that's not what it says to me. It says this. And it says that. And what it is, basically, the Word of God is customized to suit what you think it says. That's private interpretation. Doctrines as well. You say, "Well, brother, you might see it this way, but I have a conviction that this is what it's saying to me." And to people, this answer is all. It doesn't matter how many other verses you show them. It doesn't matter how much evidence you show them. That's it. To them, this is what it means. Okay, this is this is the Bible. This is your version of the Bible. This is where you're the commentator and interpreter. So no private interpretation. The scripture is to explain scripture. The scripture is to explain scripture. Now. There's many times where we can make a personal application of certain things, and I'm not discounting that, but the primary meaning of the words, the primary meaning of the scripture, what the author intended, what God inspired this author's mind to communicate, and what God intends is explained by scripture, not by, by what you think. You with me? Now, many times you might go through an experience uh, you, where you need to surrender, and it might very well be that you might get that impression through the words of the verse read earlier, I die daily. Oh yes, I need to die daily. And that can be a reminder, that's a personal application for you of a biblical truth, not directly intended by that verse, but it is true, That the conclusion is a true one. But then if you take that experience and that impression, and then you come and tell everyone in your Bible study, you know what the Lord showed me, the verse there doesn't mean Paul's suffering and death, it actually means dying to self. Then then, you, then you've gone way off. And then you when you build doctrine based on this way of reading the scriptures, then may the Lord help you and help me. You with me? Very important to understand how we divide the word of truth. I'll give you a quick example of that. We all know it. I don't need to put it on the board. The scripture interprets scripture. The word begotten in only begotten. What does that mean? According to the Bible. If you ask theologians, they'll tell you all kinds of stories, impressive stories. According to the Bible, it's an easy word because... It's only used in the Bible nine times, nine times, very easy to find the meaning of begotten or only begotten. It always means the same thing, it means only born. Only when it comes to Christ do people say, oh well it's different when it comes to Christ, it means unique, not really born. That's a private interpretation. Doesn't matter how many people hold to it. That's a, private, that's a personal opinion of the matter. The scripture does not say that. So scripture interprets scripture. And when Paul here, uh, sorry, Peter here is talking about prophecy. I realize that because people say, well, and it's true to read the words properly. Peter says, prophecy is interpreted is not of private interpretation. Yes, but prophecy is part of scripture. You use the scripture to understand prophecy and you use this, that principle is applicable to the whole world. The Bible interprets itself. And so, We need to prove all things. Test a teaching by the word of God. You need to really put any teaching you hear through the the steps of truly testing it. Prove all things and hold fast that which is good. Many times we don't do that properly. And this is what results in problems. And I'm gonna come to that as well. Uh, Many times people accept a teaching because it sounds good before they prove it. And it's very easy to find when they've done that, because you ask them questions and they don't have a real good or ready answer. They haven't really studied it out. It was appealing for whatever reason, maybe their favorite speaker, I don't know. And they accepted it, they were impressed with something in it, but there isn't any substance to what they're holding, because you ask them questions, they cannot really answer, they haven't tested it. And many times we are lazy, we don't have time, we're busy and all that, and slowly, because we've accepted it at one point, it settles and settles, and then before you know it, you've been in this thing for I don't know how many months, and then, yeah, I, I believe that, of course. And you never really tested it. We need to be able to give an answer for the things that we believe. Ensure that it's sound, the doctrine's sound, before you actually accept it. That is the teaching. Make sure it's worth holding on to, Make sure it's rightly dividing the word of truth. Now I want to deal with another aspect, and that is bogus tools and abuses. We looked at some good tools, some examples of when these tools are not used and what results. I wanna look at some bogus tools and these bogus tools and abuses are actually many times the way people study the Bible and arrive at these strange ideas. The first one I wanna look at, they're in no particular order, so the first one I wanna look at is two or three witnesses. I'm sure you've heard this before. Maybe you even use it, I don't know. But it goes something like this. You will quote two or three verses Someone will call them, followed by the uh, comment, well here it is brother, two or three witnesses, as proving a point. Now when God gave the instruction of two or three witnesses, it was first given to the judges in Israel how they were to conduct their trials. They they wouldn't go by the testimony of one witness, at least two or three witnesses before someone was put to death or before a matter was established. Someone along the way, I don't know who, came up with the novel idea That this same principle should be applied to Bible study. With all due respect, and even if you use it, to me, this is utter nonsense. I'll tell you why. It goes contrary to God's word. God does not need to repeat something before it is valid. That's what we're saying when we say two or three witnesses. In other words, when God says something once, it's not good enough, right? Until he repeats it somewhere else, it is valid. You have rendered the word of God meaningless. Nowhere does God say, and I know this is common, so I, I might be stepping on some toes here. I'm just being honest, with the honesty of my heart. When someone tells me two or three witnesses, and then they quote a couple of verses, and they smack that statement on the end. I say, what's this? How do, we, how do we get these Bible study tools? Where are we getting this stuff from? And then you know what's the worst offense? They'll quote a Bible verse and a statement from Spirit Prophecy. Two or three witnesses, brother. And I, I go, oh my, my, my. Do you see the confusion? Totally using the scripture out of context. God never told people you study the word by going to two or three witnesses. Let me show you why it's nonsense because I don't want to offend someone needlessly. When you you apply it practically, it totally collapses. This idea totally collapses. It is not a Bible study method whatsoever. When you quote a verse from Luke and a verse from Acts and you say here it is, two witnesses. Is that two witnesses? It's one author. So how does it work? When God says two witnesses, he was referring to individuals, to people. Says at the mouth of two or three witnesses, people. Many times people will think, oh, I just quote two verses. Doesn't matter from who, doesn't matter from where. So long as there are two verses, that's two or three witnesses. And then the way they use it is, you only have one verse, I have three verses, I win. Now, yes, we are to go by the weight of evidence, but the idea that two or three witnesses is a way to study the Bible is not accurate. That is one author for these two books. That's one witness, Luke. He has two books. You can't quote verses from both of them and say that's two or three witnesses. That's one person. When you quote Romans and Ephesians, that's not three or wi- two or three witnesses. That's one author, Paul, and then you throw, uh, you know, uh, Galatians there, or Colossians. Same, one witness, okay? So how does that apply? Practically, it doesn't work, okay? So let's just ditch the thing. That's a bogus Bible study method. Like I said, I don't know who came up with it. It sounds nice, I'm sure, but it is not a biblical way to study the Bible. I'll give you an illustration of that. There are many teachings that we hold to that are only mentioned once in the scripture. So what do we do with those? We throw them out? The 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. It's only mentioned in that passage. Where is the other witness for that? What do I do with it? Is it, oh, it's like it's like it's not as relevant as all these ones over here because we have them. To, you, are you with me? Man shall not live by every word of God that is repeated. Man shall live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's a way to actually dilute the word. It's to make some words more important than others. Granted, when God repeats something, it is important. He repeated it. But it's important to look at how we study things. Uh, we looked at that yesterday as well. The, the New Covenant is only mentioned once in the Old Testament. The, the expression, the New Covenant. Only Jeremiah mentions it. What well, is that a false prophecy because nobody else said it? No, it's true. And so Paul's whole argument is based on that one passage, on that one verse. Another uh, method of Bible study that is really odd is this. When words sound the same, even though they're in a different language. A good example of that, you might have heard this, is the word Amen what we say at the end of the prayer, right? Amen. And people say, you know what? That sounds like the Egyptian pagan word for the pagan god, Amun. Amen, Amun. Hmm, brother? (laughs) We shouldn't use the word amen. Okay, this is how people study. Or how about this one? Jesus, and then Zeus is the Greek god. Jesus, Zeus, huh? See what they've done to us, brother? We we can't use the word Jesus. People study this way. People write books based on this type of reasoning. This is utter nonsense. You cannot arrive at right conclusions. We're laughing and, and you know I want to laugh as well but you know what the tragedy is? People believe this stuff. People repeat this, people teach it. People change their behavior, people change the way they relate and how they communicate with the God of heaven based on these ideas. This is not how you study the Bible. I think some people speak two languages. You speak more than, if you speak more than one language, you know there are words that sound the same that have absolutely no relation to each other. There are only so many sounds in, in, in that the, the human can make, right? And there are so many words and so many languages. Of course, some are going to overlap. It's not a conspiracy. It's not some trick of Satan to try and get us to say things that we don't understand. It's language, you have to understand. Most people who make these claims, they don't speak the languages that they talk about how similar they are. People who know and understand the languages, they don't go into this stuff. So important to keep in mind, we don't fall into that. Here's another one. Spiritualizing the literal. The example I want to share is in Galatians 3.17, talking about the covenants. Paul says, this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul it, that it should make the promise of none effect. He's talking about the old covenant. He calls it the law. He says it came in 430 years after the promise was made to Abram, a specific point in time where the covenant was given. In the next chapter, the same author, Paul says, which things are an allegory, excuse me, an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. And this is what happens. People read the second verse, and they say, see the covenant is an allegory. What's an allegory mean? A representation, yeah? Something that means something else, You say, see the covenants is an allegory and they use this allegory to discount the literal application of the covenants that the same author said in the previous verse. In other words, they say this, the covenants are an allegory, they represent a heart condition or a mindset. And that's right, this is how Paul applies it as as an allegory. And then they take the leap that becomes contradictory and they say, and they don't have any existence in time. Well, Paul just told you earlier that the law came in what? 430 years after Abram. That's a particular point in time that you can identify right there. That's Mount Sinai. People say, no, no. It's all allegorical. It's all spiritual. And totally miss the meaning of what the author intends. So using the one to discount the other. Making something that God intended to be real and literal and insisting on it being allegorical only. And I'm using this example because it actually, there is a good reason to see it this way. That's part of the application. But you can't use the secondary application of the covenants, which is the personal application that the old covenant is the works-based mindset and the new covenant is the faith-based mindset. You can't use that application and discount the primary meaning of the covenants. You with me? And so this is another example. There's many other illustrations, but I just wanna pinpoint this. The opposite is also true. The opposite is literalizing the symbol. A good example in the previous one as well, symbolizing the literal is, it was too obvious, I thought we all know it. The Sonship of Christ, right? People say that's a metaphor, it's an allegory. That's not literal, it is spiritual. Again, same story. So this is the opposite, literalizing the symbol. Sometimes God gives symbols and people take them Literally, the most commonly used and abused verse in this method is the one we know in Revelation 13:8 that talks about, let me read it. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And people say, well, see here, it says, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Christ actually died. In some way, in some means, exactly how, we're not sure. But it says here he was slain from the foundation of the world. Have you heard that? I have heard that. I've heard that preached from the front. And to my horror, I've heard people repeating that and believing that. This is a symbol, brothers and sisters. And, you know, Jesus didn't die. Nothing of Christ died. There wasn't some mystical, some secret Thing that happened to Christ that resembles or comes close to death or has anything of the sort in it. This is not what the verse is dealing with whatsoever. If we check the context, you'll find something very interesting. Same book, same author, a few chapters later. Notice what he says. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is and not and is not and yet is. Notice something very carefully. It's exactly the same phrase, the same concept is being portrayed. The names are written in the book of life from when? From the foundation of the world. This is what this verse is saying. The names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, in the book of the Lamb that was slain. You with me? Just compare the verses written from the foundation of the world, written in the book of life that belongs to the Lamb that was slain, from the foundation of the world. That's allowing John to explain what John said. Not allowing me or whoever or whoever else to explain it. It's very simple. Now, don't get me wrong. Christ, of course, was promised to be the Savior. And to be the Savior, he would die. From the foundation of the world. There's no question about that. But it is a symbol. This is how the book explains it. Context and let the author explain themselves. Don't take things literally that are symbolic. Revelation is the most, one of the most symbolic books in the Bible. It says at the beginning, it's written in symbols, signified. Eisegesis, fancy Greek word for inserting your opinion in the blanks in the scripture. There are no blanks in the scripture, so just inserting your opinion anyway. This is what that means, basically. Reading your, your understanding, your opinions, your conclusions into verses that have nothing to do with that. That's your way to help the Lord, I guess. Isaiah six six three. I love this one because it demonstrates the absurdity of this method. And one cried, one angel, one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. Three times. You know what that means, brothers and sisters? You got it. That's the Trinity. That's right there. God is telling his Trinity. What? It's not two, is it? It's not four. It's three holies. Holy, holy, holy. This is basically you have decided in your mind that the trinity is the truth and you're looking for it in verses and you're reading your meaning into the verse. You will find that in that passage, these angels cry holy, holy, holy to one person, not three, to one individual person. As a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, the Bible says they cease not to cry holy, holy, holy. It's not just three. This method of Bible study, and the alarming thing is this, there are theologians who have degrees from universities, who share stuff like this. This is an utter abuse of the word of God. How are you supposed to arrive at the right meaning of of other verses when you read some of these verses this way? Now, because we don't believe in the Trinity, I guess it's easier for us to see the abuse. Some people who believe in that, it's a little bit harder. Why? Because the, the glasses are still on. The glasses with the capital T on them. By the same token, we have to conclude that when Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 7, 4, says, trust ye not in lying words, saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. We have to conclude that at that time, there were three temples in Jerusalem. This is a consistent conclusion for that method of Bible study. It illustrates the absurdity of these things. Now, this is not just people who believe By the way, there were no three temples in Jerusalem, okay? (laughs) Just just in case, there's only one. Luke 10, 41, here's another example. And Jesus answered and said, this is a little bit closer to home. You might not believe in the Trinity, right? And I've heard this as well. When Jesus was speaking, visiting Mary and Martha, and Martha was upset, right? Because Mary was sitting there and Martha was doing all the work. Jesus said to her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. Martha, Martha, how many times is that? That's father and son. Hmm? I heard this. This is people believe this stuff, brothers and sisters. Or another time where uh, Jesus told Simon, 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 Satan desired to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. How do we read the scriptures? You know, you might take the Trinitarian glasses off and be happy about it. Okay, but careful you don't read the scriptures, you know, with the father and son and see them where they aren't. And people say, you know, when Jesus said that, that's, the Father and the Son. That's, that is no less criminal use of the word of us, no less abused than the Trinitarian says, holy, holy, holy is the Trinity. This is abusing the word of God. When people look at the scriptures this way, guaranteed they will arrive at strange conclusions. So we need to be careful a little closer to them. That's why, I, you know, I didn't want to say it's only them and like we read it okay. We have to be careful as well. Okay, uh, when we look at a structure, when we look at the truth. Many times, people have a certain framework of doctrine. I I liken it here to a structure or to a house. Our framework of doctrine is like a building. It's It's a building of understanding where certain things fit in their place to have this neat, harmonious, in our opinion, building. And what happens many times is people will not believe something because it doesn't fit in their structure, what they have decided. Now, the structure might not look so symmetrical in the mind. You might have you know, windows jutting out and things all over the place, but we don't see everything clearly. And some of our concepts are self-contradictory, that's that's what I mean. Everything needs to be examined based on the foundation. Many times we look at a particular presentation or we hear something and we it sounds impressive. It sounds impressive because look how many books are written about it. Look how many DVDs are about it. Look how many people go to the camp. Subconsciously, this says something to us that there must be some validity in what this is about. You with me? I've, read, I've seen people say, you know, but look at the book, it's so big. Look at how many quotes are in the book. It must, there must be something to it. This color is a judgment. In other words, we come and look at the structure, and the structure appears very impressive to us. It appears beautiful, it appears big, and we are impressed with the amount of information that looks like it's supporting it, and so immediately there is this underlying belief that it must be true. Right? And we are impressed. This is, something, this is something that happens on the unconscious level, brothers and sisters. Simple things like, you know, this camp meeting. Well, how many people were there? Oh, 500. 500? Wow. Well, if 500 people are listening to the messages of the camp, maybe there's something to those messages. Right? We, we, don't, we don't reason it this way, but it's a subconscious method. Or look at this uh, minister. He has all these books about this subject. All these books, man. This guy studied it. And he says, I studied it for 20 years. Wow, man. Maybe there's something to this thing. It could be utter nonsense. What we need to learn, brothers and sisters, is to examine, not the structure and what it looks like impressively, the foundations. Okay, the foundations of any doctrine or teaching are a few handful of verses usually. Any false teaching is built built on abusing some key verses. You You need to have the ability to zero in and zoom in on these key verses and first examine, is the foundation sound? Because if the foundation is not sound, I have no interest in entering the house. It will collapse on top of my head. Many times we rush in because it looks good and impressive without stopping to examine the foundations. What are the key pillars that this teaching is built on? And we go all over the place. Many, You will boil it down. Any teaching boils down to a key, to key few passages or scriptures or principles on which it is based. If you can examine that these are sound, then you can proceed. If they're not sound, Proceed with caution or do not even proceed at all. Very important. So, a good example of that is the Trinity. We all know that, right? The Trinity is built on a handful of texts and they've built this huge edifice. Books and literature, all kinds of stuff. You look at the handful of texts, they don't don't support that idea. The whole structure is not sound. Many, many other examples. Uh, Another very bogus tool is... Accepting something because it feels good Accepting something as truth because it feels right it makes sense This is actually a very common and a very subconscious way again to accept something. It's uh, It's the method that the Mormons use They'll give you the Book of Mormon and tell you read it and if you pray and get a good feeling then you know it's the truth They don't tell you tested by the Word of God if you get a good feeling. Our feelings are very easy to be manipulated. Good speakers can manipulate the feelings and emotions of the audience from up the front and make them feel good. Do you realize that? Paul says they do that with flowery speech, with fair speech and and, and nice words and they deceive people. I've had people tell me, you know, well, I went to this meeting and man, uh, it felt so good. What they said must be true, feeling-based doctrine. This is not a way to determine the scriptures. The people, you know the people who talk in unintelligible tongues that are many times actually demonic manifestations? You know the Pentecostals, you know what I'm talking about? You know, if, if you ask these people why they do that, they will describe to you how amazing and good it feels. I've heard testimonies. They say, this, this is so. I've heard people who've come off, who come out of that, and they give a testimony and say, Brother, you know, if I, I can't describe to you how amazing and how beautiful it feels to have this feeling come over you and to speak in these tongues. There is almost nothing you could say to these people. You show them the word, they say, but it feels good. We have the same problem. Maybe not to that extent, but we have, when people, uh, you know, they, they listen to something or they, do, they go to a camp meeting. This is a popular one. People go to a camp meeting and, and they will be very blessed. The camp meeting happens to be at a feast time, right? Feast days, a lot of their feast camps. And people conclude, you know, it felt so good. The feasts must be true. And many times this is why people accept it. Feeling-based doctrines are not necessarily biblical. This is a very, very common and very dangerous trend that we need to look at. Or, you know, majority... Where, where do people, where does the majority stand? You know, how many people go and attend something? How many people believe the truth? I've had this said to me once. See, you know, if you guys are right about the truth about God, how come everybody else in the church doesn't see it? All these theologians and all these teachers, how come they don't see it? Numbers. The truth is based on numbers. If you think like that, you would not have been in the upper room. I guarantee you. Now, if you're here today, chances are you don't think like that. Perhaps. But it's a subconscious thing. We always look for numbers, feelings, things that color our judgment when it comes to examining the truth. We have to honestly, with ourselves, be objective. The last one I wanna deal with is one that's much closer to home. This is the SDA method of abuse. And the SDA method of abuse has to do with the writings of Alan White. How we use Alan White to actually abuse the Bible. Amazing, is that even possible? It's more common than you think. And here's what I mean. When people use Ellen White to interpret the Bible. Do you know that Ellen White was not given to interpret the Bible? Did you know that? Or when people say things like, Ellen White is a divinely inspired commentary on the scriptures. You heard that, right? That's a very common one. That is not true. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's not divine, I'm not saying it's not inspired. But it is not a commentary on the scriptures, you know why? It doesn't address every scripture. If you get a Bible commentary, it goes through the Bible and explains every verse. God did not give Alan White as a commentary and explain every verse. Guys, no more thinking, no more studying. Here is the spirit of prophecy, it explains all the verses, just read it and you're fine. This is how many people view the writings of the spirit of prophecy. As a matter of fact, a lot of people study the Bible by do their Bible study, by typing words in the Ellen White CD, search. That's how they do their Bible study. Are you with me? Or here's another one. Sometimes in sermons, I see that a lot. We will quote a verse, but sometimes we feel the verse has more effect or more weight if the verse is actually quoted by Mrs. White. So that at the end of the verse you have the textual reference, then you have the reference of the book where that verse is quoted by Mrs. White, and th- you've got a do- double whammy there, right? The verse means much more. This is how people use it. This is how sometimes I used to think I had to do when I preach. And if you have if you have your sermon richly peppered with plenty of Ellen White quotes, it must be true. What happens, brothers and sisters? We actually abuse and dilute the Word of God. The Word of God has no more. Relevance and meaning to us as it should because it's been watered down. I'll tell you what I mean. You will share something, something from the Bible and people will say, well, where's Ellen White's uh, quote? Where's Ellen White's statement? And what you share from the Bible is clear and plain and true, biblically. And people will hesitate before accepting it because they are used to not seeing or taking the Bible alone for what it says, but it has to be affirmed and confirmed by the spirit of prophecy. Now it is impossible to do that for every teaching of the scriptures. You know why? Because Ellen White did not comment on every verse and on every teaching in the scriptures. So there will be some teachings and some verses that have no quote whatsoever. So what do people do with those? They don't accept them? The, the most glaring example we all know it. No matter how much you share from the scriptures about the truth about the Father and the Son, you share a whole hour study. Verse after verse after verse, crystal clear. People will say, well, Third person of the Godhead. <laughs> and that answer is all. Ellen White many times is held above the scriptures. It is used to interpret the scriptures. You know if it's used to interpret the scriptures, it's higher than the scriptures? That is not the purpose of spirit prophecy. Now I'm not knocking spirit prophecy. I love the spirit prophecy and I read it and we should study it. But it is not the way we are to study the Bible. It's not we study the Bible through what Ellen White says only. Because that is limited in scope. It has some beautiful treasures, it has some beautiful meanings, but it does not exhaust the word of God. As a matter of fact, she says it herself. There's no need to take my word for it. Here it is, from the famous book, Evangelism. The testimonies of Sister White should not be carried to the front. God's word is the honoring standard. The testimonies are not to take the place of the word. Let all prove their positions from the scriptures and substantiate every point they claim as truth from the revealed word of God. That's what we are to do. There are countless statements that are like that. Do we establish our beliefs and teachings from the Word of God? So this is an abuse of scriptures that is in among us uh, using the writings of Ellen White or using the writings of others that Ellen White endorsed and supported. So you see the scriptures through a number of layers. And many times our Bible study is actually no Bible study at all. It is actually the lazy way where someone actually studies the Bible and opens the Bible and just run a search, find a quote. This is what a lot of people's Bible study is, just find a quote. No thinking, no. it's all been done for us. Why, why reinvent the wheel? Brothers and sisters, this is a very, very sad abuse of the writings. And we quote them so often that we turn people off, Right? We're diluting God's word. It's like God's word when you present it to people is not enough. God says in his word in Isaiah, he talks to people who tremble at his word. That when God said it, God means it. That's why elsewhere she says, for any teaching, before accepting any teaching, we are to demand that thus saith the Lord for it. Now, I've gone over time already, so I might as well take a few more minutes. So so I want to share with you a little poem here that I find very relevant. And uh, actually, before we do, I have another quote here. Yeah, great controversy. We all read that, right? Or most of us have. But God will have a people upon the earth who maintain to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrines, as teachings, and the basis of all reforms. Before accepting any doctrine or precept, we should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord, in its support. And uh, when she says, thus saith the Lord, she is referring to the Bible, to the Scriptures. Ellen White is not... Uh, equal to the scriptures. Yeah, it's, it's inspired as well, but it's, it's not equal to the scriptures. It's not higher than the scriptures. It is the lesser light. It is subordinate to the scriptures. The scripture tests the spirit of prophecy, not the other way around. You with me? And you don't need the spirit of prophecy. to validate scripture. That, you, what scripture is not enough. If God said it, it, isn't that enough? But many times we have this tendency, and it's a phrase we all use, well, It's common, maybe we're all heard, I'll say that. Well, I'll believe it, brother, if it's according to the Bible and spirit of prophecy. Yes, good, excellent. But this does something in our minds. We put the Bible and spirit of prophecy on a level, and then it starts confusing and diluting the word of God. Now, they don't contradict. And Mrs. White is in harmony with the scriptures, but our doctrines, according to her, are to be based on the Bible. We are to preach the word. When they take you to the courts and before kings, you're going to quote the spirit of prophecy to them? You can quote the Bible. You know, many times people can quote the spirit of prophecy better than they quote the Bible. So something to be aware of. Let me, and I put two quotes from Mrs. White, and that's not two or three witnesses, okay? <laughs> it's one witness, okay? But it's, it's there. Let me read you this poem. I think whoever put it together said it well. It's entitled, Sister White Said It. Sister White said it. Well, I never really read it, But someone said she said it, so of course it must be so. To prove my point, I'll quote it. Though I can't show you where she wrote it, but someone said she said it, and that's all I need to know. It saves a lot of time for me if I just listen carefully when others speak of Sister White and what they say she said. Though I can't repeat it word for word, I'll tell you what I think I heard and quote you things from Sister White that no one's ever read. You know, I read that and I thought, wow, that's so true. In our comments and in our discussions, it comes up so often. Mrs. White said, Mrs. White said, and many times it's true. Here is one that I will put to you that I've heard so often that I have yet to see the reference and quote for it. And it's it's about the war in heaven. And it's like, I'll summarize it because I don't know what the quote is. (laughs) I've, I've yet to see it. But someone said she said it. <laughs> when Satan rebelled, he actually took with him half the angels. Some of them came back to God, and he only had the third, and that's who were cast out. Are you familiar with that quote or that passage? Okay. Tell me where the reference is. I've heard this so often. Honestly, I have heard this so often, internationally. And it seems, I don't know how it got into, into I have never read it. I've read every book that I think has to do with it, Patriarchs and Prophets, Story of Redemption. Uh, in the Great Controversy, it talks about the war in heaven. So if you know this quote or you have it, please give it to me. Please tell me where I can find it. I'll be interested to read that. That is a piece of information I'll be interested in. So this is something. You know it? To... You remember reading it? Okay. You remember? Okay, everybody says that, but I went and read it. Nobody, I can't find it. So if you have a page, I would appreciate it. This is a a good example, to me, of something that exists and it's common. I told you that we are familiar with it. And I I honestly want to see where it is. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I haven't read every word she wrote, so it might be there, but no no one who has ever told me that has been able to produce it. And so I would love to see it. That's an example. Finally, I'll just close with this thought. Whatever, when we come to the scriptures, we need to (coughs) take into account what Christ accomplished on the cross. To rightly divide the word of truth, we need to understand what was accomplished at the cross. Paul says, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we interpret the scripture without taking into account what Christ accomplished on the cross and what that means and the plan of salvation and how that before the cross, we understand that there is an old covenant and that there is a new covenant afterwards and all these elements, these aid us and help us in rightly dividing the word of truth. When you look at it in light of, The cross, and what the cross has accomplished. A good example of that is John 7. This is our last verse, so you can take a deep breath. We're almost at the finish line. John 7, 38 and 39. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This is Jesus speaking. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Spirit, or Ghost, was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. You can't fully understand what this verse means without the cross and what happened on the cross. And when we say cross, we're talking about the whole package of the death and the resurrection of Christ. It's not just when he died on the cross and that's it. The cross is a symbol of the victory of Christ over Satan. He was victorious through death and his resurrection is the seal and the illustration and the manifestation and the outgrowth of that. And so it's the whole package. What Jesus was talking about was something that would come about as a result of what he would accomplish. Of course, after his resurrection, he went to heaven, he was glorified, and then that spirit came. When we fail to realize that, when we fail to realize the difference that the cross makes, we will have this standardized view of everything being the same before and after the cross. And it will lead us to misunderstanding many things in the scriptures, particularly when it comes to the new and the old covenant. The problem that exists today among many people, which is common, borrowing elements of the old covenant and incorporating them into the new is because the cross is not taken into account when interpreting the scriptures. So this is another important, very important principle when it comes to understanding the Bible. I've had people tell me, well, you know, the word there, not yet, it doesn't really mean that. And what they were struggling with was This spirit had to be there all the time. They couldn't accept that it was only on this side after Christ was glorified and not before, when that is exactly what it's saying. Why? Because there is no realization, maybe they, they haven't considered or believed that there is something that changes as a result of the cross of Christ. If in our study, if the scripture has been given to us and the mission of Christ came and accomplished and we still think that things haven't changed, that things remain as they were, then honestly, we are truly blinded. We don't understand what happened on the cross. It's actually meaningless to us. A very important aspect. The the key to the New Testament is actually understanding the cross because the cross ushered in the New Testament or the new covenant. If you want to have any hope at rightly dividing the word, particularly the New Testament section of it, you have to look at it in light of the cross. And so this is what Paul warned Timothy about and this is my warning to you. Beware of false teachers, but more importantly, beware of false teachings. We looked at some examples of how doctrines of devils are promoted today. And we looked at some examples of how we are to rightly divide the word of truth. I pray that the Lord will bless you and save you and preserve you from some of these strange teachings that exist today. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.